You're listening to LCC Alumni Stories, a show dedicated to highlighting the amazing alumni of Lansing Community College. I'm Steve Robinson, president of LCC, and on each episode, I have the awesome privilege of getting to know one of our many inspiring alums and hearing about their experiences at and since leaving LCC. The LCC alumni community is expansive and far-reaching. They're an incredibly diverse group of people, representative of all the walks of life, working in hundreds of industries across the country. LCC Alumni Stories shines a bright light on alumni who make positive contributions to their communities and showcases those who overcome obstacles and barriers to achieve academic and personal success. These are their dynamic stories. My guest today is Rick Hamilton, a 1990 graduate of LCC who earned his associate's degree in aviation technology. He's currently the CEO of Blue Planet Software. Rick, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, Steve, great. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, you know, before we talk about your time here at LCC, your degree and your field have taken you all over the world. Yeah. I would love to hear about what you do at Blue Planet and your background and experience in aviation. Tell me uh, what you're doing right now. Sure. Right now, uh, Blue Planet Software, we write uh, AI software for all the large carriers around the world. So think AT&T, uh, Comcast, all of those kind of network providers around the world, we, we, we write software for them that helps them automate their, their networks. Okay, and AI is artificial <clears throat> intelligence. Artificial intelligence, right. So right, can, sorry. can you tell me a little bit about what this software does for these giant companies? Well, the best way to describe it, it can get a little bit geeky, I guess, is, mm-hmm. you know, they have very large networks that have a bunch of different domains and segments, and that, that takes a lot of people to run, uh-huh. to configure them, to make sure they're running properly, capacity, throughput, route paths. So we, we write software that gives them intelligent ways to manage that so they can do it machine to machine instead of having people running those networks. Got it. So instead of having real humans doing switching or connecting these systems, you write software That's that right. helps these systems work together. That's exactly right. Okay. For, for example, if, you were, if you're a cable provider, we know that traffic at a certain point of the day is a heck of a lot higher than it is at other points of the day. So we help them shift their networks around in real time so that you get the best experience you can have from from their networks and they don't have to hire people to do that work. Well, and some of those some of those tasks are probably better done by software than people. It's not just a function of replacing people, but the software uh, knows more and can do it faster probably. Yeah, and it's, you know, the the heart of machine to machine learning is that a machine talking to a machine can do it better than a a human talking to a machine, so that's for sure. I find that fascinating. So Blue Planet, you're um, headquartered in Detroit? No, I just live in Detroit. Our headquarters is actually in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay, okay. so the, the headquarters are in Baltimore, but yep. you're live, you live back here in Michigan. But you haven't always done software, right? You had a f- career in aviation. Tell me a little bit about this career that took you all over the world. Yeah, I started, uh, well, actually, when I graduated here, I was doing what everybody does. I got all my certifications, and I was a flight instructor, and... Got a cargo job in California. I moved to California to fly airplanes Mm -hmm. for a living. But uh, we can talk about later. I actually learned a lot here about computers and computer science. I can't wait to hear. Yeah, and so my hobby was writing software, and my my profession was flying airplanes. But in the early 90s, you know, flying airplanes was not the most lucrative career in the world. Okay. And uh, I don't know. It just happened one day. Hobby became a a career, and career became a hobby. So that, that started you know, this movement around the world. So I lived in, boy, I was in California for almost 10 years. I lived in Hong Kong and Singapore for three. I just came back from Europe. I was there for 10 years. So that's mostly been technology related. Those so times. so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the time period here. So your hobby, then hobby of, of coding and computer software, right, be, became so much more marketable and the demand probably went through the roof. Oh, yeah. It was crazy. I mean, I, I did a special project for a small company out there. I had a friend that worked there. He said, can you help us with this problem? I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. I know this. I know how to do this work. We can talk about that later. It was on a platform called an AS400, which the college here used to run, and I got to spend a bunch of time with. I learned RPG here at LCC, so I said, I know RPG, and I know the AS400. I can solve this problem for you. And literally, I did that twice, and at the end of the week, I got a paycheck, and it was more money than I'd made two months flying. So all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, this is this is something very interesting, and I can still fly, and I can make a better living, and it's just the way it went. So that's fascinating to me. It sounds like you learned how to fly in multiple ways here yeah. at LCC, <laughs> right? You literally fly, but also fly with your career. That's maybe a great way to pivot back to 
the time you studied. Did you uh, did you grow up around here? Well, how did you how how did you get to LCC? I did. I grew up just north of here, small little farming town called Fowler. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I come from a fairly big family. I have five brothers, and um, you know, access to uh, big universities was a problem financially. Uh-huh. Uh, but but I knew I wanted to fly airplanes, and at that time. LCC had one of the foremost flight schools in the country, in fact. I don't right. know if you remember those days, but it was one of the best flight schools around. Uh, so yeah, so I wound up getting a job here and, uh, you know, entering school here. I did a couple courses my last year of high school. So you started the, the, on this flight training in aviation while you were in high school yeah. in Fowler, right? And, yep. but, and obviously the flight program is what attracted you to LCC. Yep. You came here and you eventually earned that associate degree. Um so you, you did the flight training, but you also worked here, didn't I, you? I did. Yeah, tell me about your experience doing that. Yeah, it was great, actually. I, um, you know, when I first came to school, figuring out how to pay for everything was a big challenge because, you know, flight school, we had, LCC was, still is, but it was very affordable to go to basic classes. Right. But I had to fly airplanes, so the lab fees were, were pretty big. So They I to, can be, yeah. They can be, and I had to work. Uh, so as part of my student aid package, uh, the college offered me a job, and I worked over in uh, a building just across from here, business services. Right. Uh, Nineteen At the end of 89, I guess I was a mail guy. So it was a great job because I was delivering mail all over the campus, and I got to meet everybody. It was, uh, it was really, really a great way to start. So you worked in the mail room. That is a, like an iconic yeah. first job, right? It was right? a cliche in, thing, right? No, it's awesome. And, <laughs> and so you worked in that. And I think that that building you're talking about, the one you uh, worked in, is no longer there, yeah. right? But it got you all over campus. And so did you work the entire time you were studying here? Yeah, I did. I worked. Uh, I took mostly night classes out at the airport right because at that time our listeners would remember in the in the 80s and the 90s the flight program was at capital city airport right that's That's where we had that so you were you were working here at the downtown campus heading out to the airport to take classes that's right that's right yep so um did you start flying right when you right when you graduated i did i i I took a small internship with a school as mm-hmm. a flight instructor, and okay. two months later, I got offered a job in California. So packed up my little car and off to California I went. So so you were flying cargo and then also training pilots? Yep, training pilots out of Burbank and uh, flew for a company called Amflight. Ba- back in those days, the cargo was canceled checks. You, you, you probably remember checks. Everybody wrote checks, and, I the, do. and the banks had to move them around physically. So I had a route that was just nothing but mail bags full of checks, and I would fly to four airports every day and back to Burbank, and that was a year, year and a half of work for me. I never even thought about it. Of course I know about checks, but it didn't occur to me that they had to get from bank to bank and place to place. So you literally were yep. putting them in airplanes and flying them between yep. banks. Yep. You leave one airport, two bags would go off. Get to that airport, two bags would come on. It was the same thing over and over. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. So you did that in California, but it sounds like you got some other non-aviation skills here at LCC that later came in handy out there in, in California about the dot-com yeah, boom era, right, right? right? Tell me about that. What did you study having to do with computers here? Well, I didn't really study. It was part of the job. So I worked over in business services. Mm-hmm. I started in the mailroom, and there was another group over there that did office supplies. Okay. So we delivered paper and pens and everything to every department here on the campus. And the system that the school used to handle the ordering and all of that internally was all done on an AS400. And of course, with my mail job, I got to know the guys over in the MIS department really well. Uh-huh. And uh, we were a part of a, uh, a team that was helping them write that software. And they were great. This part of my whole experience at LCC, these guys would just be like, hey, you're interested, sit down and I'll show you how to do this. Really? So I never took any formal classes here. Uh, just as a part of the working in this environment, the... Um, yeah, the opportunity was there to learn how to do things. It so, was incredible. So I find this fascinating because colleges are amazing places to learn, and you can learn formally in a classroom where you're paying tuition, you're getting you're getting credits, and 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 working toward a degree. But what what I'm hearing about your experience is your actual student employment, yeah. working with folks in um, administrative services and MIS, which would be what management information systems, yeah. yeah. Um, that that what turned into a marketable skill for you working with these uh, working with this computer system. Yeah, without question. I mean, the 
I used to tell people, I went on to get two other degrees, and, and you know, I would always get in a conversation about LCC, you know, where is that? Mm-hmm. One of the great things about the school when I was here, and I imagine it's the same now, is that the, the people that were teaching were practitioners. They, right. they did this for a living, mm-hmm. which I think in education I've learned is incredibly important. So right. they were, like in this story, the guy who ran the MIS department, the, he, he was passionate about what he did, and all I had to do was show an interest, and he was like, come on in. So after work, I would spend time there. He would give me a terminal. I would I was writing code, just not really goofing around, just learning. He loved it. And I learned a skill that actually turned into my career. That is so cool. So the coding you did here, um, in, not as part of a class, but as part of your job, we used that software to get things done here yeah. at the college. Get, and, and because um, this is getting to be... Um, you know, it's the principles are the same, but that was like a mainframe uh, system, right? Yep. Uh, very different than the kind of uh, P- PC environment that people are used to. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like to, you know, write code on one of those dumb terminals and um, <laughs> actually have something happen. Well, you know, we, we, yeah, it was that was part of the interest. It was fun because, <clears throat> like like you said, we were actually trying to do something. Yeah. So here we were trying to figure out how to optimize the supplies that we had in our warehouse based on what people on the campus need. You know, who ordered canary paper? You know, what department ordered canary color paper versus another one? So so it was an interesting sort of intellectual challenge to write software that helped us figure that out so that we ordered the right amount so we had it on hand to get to the college. And it, it wasn't, uh, it, it, was, it was more of a experiment that was fun we were like we could make our jobs easier if we just do this and so it was an incredible incredible experience i, I love picturing that and for and for our, uh, the, the listeners who are younger than me and don't remember this kind of computing what rick what you're talking about is like just characters on a screen oh, right yeah. no pictures no. no drag and drop this is before any kind of you know windows or apple this is a command line thing yeah. that you're doing right you're looking probably at a green screen or an orange screen and, and typing in letters and numbers. Yeah, green green screen terminals on a on a huge machine that sat here on campus and you're right it was before, you know, it was before the internet. People cell phones were around, people still had pagers, you know, it's kind of a, that era in technology. Mm-hmm. So super exciting and um, you just a person my age at that time in my life, wouldn't have had access to that kind of an environment to do something real right. in a mainframe computer. And here it was just sort of like, come on in and do this. I mean, I found it to be, it, w- it was amazing, actually. That, that is something that I think is different for community colleges in a, in a very positive way. I mean, it, a, a student who was showing interest like that at a large, maybe, research university wouldn't have that person sit you in front of a terminal and say, hey, see if you can write some code to, to track that canary paper. Right. That's right. So, so when, you, when, did it, when did it occur to you that these, were more, uh, uh, that these were skills that might allow you to fly in a different way, not flying the cargo, but, but flying you know, in, the, in the software world? You know, I told that story earlier when the friend of mine in California needed help. It was just, hey, I've done this before, so mm-hmm. just get me in front of a terminal and I'll, I'll know exactly so what to do. So tell me about that. What's that first uh, enterprise or, or, or project that you worked on? Uh, it was a sporting goods store uh, in California that uh, they believed that they had some internal theft happening, and they were trying to write a program to see if they could determine what was happening. They had like 72 stores. So... I said to him over lunch, I said, well, listen, everybody has to buy with their employee number and you're going to have all those transactions on your on your mainframe. Mm-hmm. And why don't you go look at those patterns and see? He didn't know how to do that. So he put me in front of a terminal after lunch and said, show me how to do it. Literally, it was 10 lines of code. And out came a report. And it's, it's kind of a bad story, but a good story. They wound up terminating like 10 employees. Okay, who, so you were able to write some code where they could find out where this yeah. loss was happening. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's a bad story, but the good part of it is that, you know, this technology, this skill allowed this business to solve the problem that it couldn't solve before. That's right. The second part of that, just to be very quick, the second part of that was, hey, we're trying to rewrite some basic algorithms around our inventory management. And I remembered what we were doing here for the office. I said, listen, I've done a little of this before. So I got a week-long project that helped them predict demand and then create, you know, the supply that they needed to in their stores, which for retailers, inventories, everything, right? It's where okay. all their mom- all right. 
but I had done it with pens and papers and all kinds of stuff here, paper clips here on campus. It was the same concept, and uh, just it was total luck, to tell you the truth, that 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 opportunity presented itself, and I'd done a little bit of that here, and it just took off from there. Well, you say luck. I hear what you're saying, but you know, one of the things that you said earlier is that as you were working as a student employee, there were folks who had jobs here at LCC who recognized in you some curiosity, some initiative and drive to the point where they kind of grabbed you and said, hey, work on this. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things I love about Institute. And by the way, stuff like that happens still at LCC. Not everybody who uh, is a teacher or imparts knowledge is necessarily a faculty member in the classroom. That's one of the things I love about our college. We've got great people who do all kinds of teaching. And what I'm hearing you say is there's this sort of informal curriculum or oh, yeah. something going on where you, where you learned a lot just by being here. There's no question. I mean, we had um, just a couple of names from the past. The yeah. guy, the guy who ran the flight schools, he was the chief pilot. His name was Tom Crashen. Okay. I'll never forget Tom. He 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 was just a real human being. And the first, you know, when you're when you're new in that environment, you go out to the airport and there's airplanes everywhere. Right. Super welcoming guy, and he was just a role model. And then I come down here and I work in business services and I get to meet, of course, the folks in the MIS department, but but your predecessor probably of two or three cycles, mm -hmm. Abel Sykes Jr. Yes, was Dr. The, Sykes, sure. And I was in his office uh, every day and he would say hello and quite often he would, what's going on, How, you know, what, what's happening over there? So he was, it was just informal conversations, which I think shape, probably helped shape my character more than I really recognized then, uh -huh. but I certainly do now. So it's yeah you 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 have faculty that's great you have administration people that you can you just have access to them in a smaller environment like LCC and it's uh, it's life changing I mean I, it was really important for me I, I love care. hearing that and by the way I have heard so many stories about Dr Sykes and you know he has passed uh, yep. and and his tenure here as president is getting to be a long time ago but there's still a lot of great positive memories about a, what a warm and engaging person he was how positive he was and of course our a library building, the Teaching uh, Technology Learning Center is is named after him. Right. Uh, there's a great picture of him in the in the lobby there. So so LCC people had a big influence on you. Now so you're 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 working information technology. You're you you had your aviation career. You did go on to get other degrees. Where did you where did you study, and what were the other degrees that you earned? I studied computer science at the uh, University of Phoenix. Mm -hmm. So another sort of non-traditional sure, kind of sure. uh, university. Primarily online. Yep, yep primarily mm -hmm. online. And then I got my master's degree in software engineering at Golden Gate University, which was literally in a building right next to a building I worked uh, at in San Francisco. So it was perfect. I could work all day and go to school at night. And Well, and that, that activity, I mean, we talk about the dot-com boom. My own sister, who's got an MBA, she, she went out to San Francisco with a buddy who did a startup. There was so much entrepreneurial activity, uh, particularly as, you know, the uh, information technology and software boomed, right? So you worked in that uh, sporting goods environment. Tell me a little bit about what where you went from there in, in technology and software. Yeah, most of it, the early days revolved around retail. It was just sort of a, a, a skill I had, a, a domain I understood. Uh -huh. So I worked for a company called Cost Plus World Market. You probably probably have heard of them, no? Uh, Discovery Channel. Oh, I, okay. I worked for Discovery Channel. We did. We worked in the IT department way back in the early days of Discovery. You could watch a show, and then it would say, hey, "Call one eight hundred Discovery if you want to order the video." Okay. We wrote the software that allowed the the agents to to manage that in, those incoming calls and place the orders and get the videos shipped to your house. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's really kind of that, that's how it started. It just sort of grew from there. The I took my first executive role uh, for Louis Vuitton out of Paris. They have a big division. They had a big division here in the U.S., which eventually we moved to Hong Kong. Okay. That started all my international travels. So I was their CIO, Chief Information Officer. Um, and yeah. so you did that in Hong Kong. Did that in Hong Kong. Okay, and that was and that's that is fashion apparel industry, right? But you. Or, or probably a bigger brand than that, right? Yeah, they have about, they have about 100 Tag Heuer watches to Dom Perignon and just about everything in between. Oh, okay. So a huge international enterprise, Big. and you're chief information officer for them uh, in Asia. Yep. And then you worked in Europe as well. I worked in Europe. After I, after I had come back from Asia, I went to work for a company called Cisco Systems, a huge networking 
the sister company. I mentioned worked for Cisco oh, as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, big, big company. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and I was running uh, services for them, so professional services, which were generally customers using our technology. We helped them get the most out of it. It's the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. And they had a pretty big business in Europe, and the president of that group was retiring, so I got a chance to take my family overseas. It was supposed to be a two-year assignment. It turned into seven years, and my kids wound up going to school. You know, they were sixth grade, I think, when we moved, the, the youngest one. So they went right up through university uh, in Europe. Really? Yeah. Right, so where were you living? What part of Europe? Uh, we lived in Brussels. Okay, yep. in Belgium. All in right. Belgium, yep. And and then uh, the is it the Blue uh, Planet uh, opportunity that brought you back to the states? No, I came. I was still with Cisco. They mm-hmm. repatriated me back to the states, and mm-hmm. then uh, I met the CEO of a company called Sienna, which is the parent company of Blue Planet. One of the best guys I've ever worked for in my entire career. His name's Gary Smith. He he and I happened to cross paths, and he said, "You got to come over and do this for me." So so tell me a little bit about Blue Planet. What do you, what do you do there? Well, it's a it's a small smallish company. We're just about 160 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, we write software for these large carriers around the world, mm-hmm. and, and I run everything from sales to to R and D. Fantastic, so, fantastic. Yeah. Now, I do have a question for you. Do you when you you work with so many IT professionals in so many different uh, sectors? Have you? Have you bumped into other folks who had who got their start or have some kind of connection to community college? Have you have you have you found other folks who benefited from a community college like you have? Yeah, a handful actually, a few that actually came through LCC. Believe it or not, I was at a conference in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Cisco's is your sister, probably a huge company. It's a giant company. She she went there. The, uh, a company she worked for was acquired, you know. And yeah, yeah. that happened to a buddy of mine too. So That's right. so so you met other LCC folks who were in that Cisco environment? Yeah, I saw somebody at a t- this is a local story, but his last name was Weber, which most people would pronounce as Weber. And uh-huh. I'm like, you gotta be from you gotta be from around Michigan. Uh-huh. Turns out he went here, he went to school in Portland, just up the street from where I live. So yeah, I'd met a number of people and we I had a office in Austin, Texas for a while and I bet half of our staff was going to a community college in Austin. It was just a really popular place for kids to come out of high school and learn a trade like software. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they they viewed it as sort of a, a, a technical kind of path versus an academic path. And um, I, I had a number of employees out of a community college there. Yeah, ACC is a good school. Yeah. And Austin is a cool town. It's a cool town. Well, so so your your LCC experience has taken you all over the world. Is are there other are there other memories about being here uh, that you'd like to share? I know um, as a as a student employee. Uh, one of the perks was actually having a place to park, park right? Yeah. <laughs> tell me, tell me about what it was like to be a student here in the in the late eighties. Yeah, you know, in the eighty eighty nine coming down here, uh, I think the Gannon parking garage was just built. It was somewhere seventy six. Yeah, it was built in seventy six, so it was relatively new. And everything else was street parking, mm-hmm. and there was a garage just up here on Capitol, but mm-hmm. it was always full because all the local businesses filled it and up, and all the state employees and everything. Yeah, a very busy time. Yeah, and so as a as a student coming down here. Um, if you didn't have a little, I'll never forget it. It was a little green parking pass that said LCC on it. You had to pay for parking. And it wasn't, you know, for, for a kid, that wasn't trivial. Right. So when I got my, when I, I started as a student aid employee here, and then I got hired as a part-time, and they handed me that parking pass, I remember thinking, oh, this is life-changing. Special. <laughs> You're special. I'm going to have you a spot to... I can park in. And yeah, it was uh, it was fun. And it was just a great environment to be to be down here. I love being downtown. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I really do. So, tell me were the it sounds like you were busy, so maybe you weren't able to take part in many activities, but were there uh, you know, extracurricular or outside of class activities you were able to uh, take part in or were you always uh, heading out to the airport to get yeah. uh, flight time? No, I was always headed to the airport after after work, but I think one of the things I really loved about LCC was a big part of my social sort of experience as a kid was right here mm-hmm. in town. Uh, we talked about Dr. Sykes. I mean, he and I used to wind up in the gym together. Run. There was a there was this tiny lap in this gym, uh-huh. uh, and we wound up there before I'd go out to the campus. We just worked out on the same day. So I don't know. I just had a great – there were so many people here that I knew that this was sort of my social world. Working was out in the campus. Like uh-huh. I was – I was out all the time. So yeah, night nighttime with school and 
daytime was here, going to lunch with people and hanging out with people on campus. It was just something I'll never forget. It right. was a fantastic experience. And coming from Fowler, Lansing's sort of the big city. It right? was. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Exactly. <laughs> it was. And then, and then the world got a lot bigger for you, right? I mean, bigger. when you talk about all the places you've lived, all the experiences you've had, uh, LCC's taken you a lot of different places. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm super proud of uh, what I accomplished here because it was more than you know, I got a two-year degree in aviation flight technology, but, um, you know, I, at that time, I knew all the board members of the school because I delivered their board packets. You know, this was before email. Yeah. So I would have coffee with them in their house when I would deliver their packets. So back then, it, it didn't dawn on me, but the kind of exposure that I had was something that was really, really special. And as I lived in different places around the world, like you said, a small little farming community to the big city of Lansing, mm -hmm. and then I'm in Hong Kong and Sydney, Australia, and London... I felt like I was ready for that. Like it was, uh, I was confident when I left here. That's probably the most important thing because people treated me like I mattered. And uh, that was super important. Well, you did matter and you still do. And, and it's, it's really inspiring to hear about the things that you learned as a student employee. I mean, what you learned in your degree was important. But one of my big takeaways from our conversation is just by uh, working with folks who took an interest in you and were uh, confident in your ability to solve problems, that those were the skills that were that led you to your further degrees and 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 landed you in the corner office CEO uh, yeah. role uh, for for a big tech firm. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, Rick, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show and all the best in your future endeavors, wherever um, your skills take you flying in the future. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. LCC Alumni Stories is recorded, engineered, and produced by me, Steve Robinson, on LCC's downtown campus. The soundtrack, Who Told You, is licensed through DeWolf Music and was performed by Ian McCanty. Thanks for listening. Learn more about what our alumni have been up to at lccconnect.org. And if you're an LCC alum and want to share your story, send me an email at steve.robinson at lcc.edu. Until next time, keep learning. This is LCC Connect on WLNZ 89.7 FM. Featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that help to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. If you're considering returning to school, exploring career options, or needing support in life transitions, Lansing Community College has the Adult Resource Center available to qualified students. The Adult Resource Center staff provides one-on-one -on -one appointments, registration assistance, referrals to community and campus resources, tuition and childcare grants, academic advising, and other helpful tools to help with your educational career. To find out more information, visit lcc.edu and search Adult Resource Center. We are the NFHS. That stands for the National Federation of State High School Associations. But really, what we stand for, together with the MHSAA, are the 292,000 high school sports students in Michigan. And so we stand. We stand for the runners, soccer, and basketball players. We stand for their coaches, administrators, and officials. We stand for the swimmers, football players, and wrestlers. We stand for the golfers, softball, and volleyball players. We stand as the national leader and advocate for high school athletics and all who participate in them and make them possible. Because it is our purpose to ensure that high school students get to play, perform, and compete together. To learn more about who we are and what we stand for, visit nfhs.org. LCC Connect is looking for Lansing Community College students to vibe with us. Join us for the Podcast Power-Up Contest with the chance to host a podcast radio show on 89.7 FM. We'll be taking power-up submissions through the end of summer. Details at lcc.edu slash power-up. 
the Lansing Community College Foundation provides scholarships that make education possible, change students' lives, and uplift our community. The foundation annually accepts scholarship applications from November through January. Learn more at lcc.edu scholarships. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Welcome to Galaxy Forum. I'm your host, Melissa Kaplan, and we're here to explore the creativity happening in the LCC galaxy, in our classrooms and on campus, and connecting the work of our stars with our community. Though this episode will be available for listeners at any time, we are recording it in November of 2022, during Transgender Awareness Week. On November 20th every year, this week culminates with Transgender Awareness Day. And like everything that's commemorated with a week or a day, it's incredibly important in order to focus awareness, but it's applicable year-round. I am so pleased to welcome my guests today, Lane Ingram, who is the Chief of Staff in the Office of the President at Lansing Community College, a trans man and an LGBTQ plus advocate, and the host of the Reconstructed Man podcast, and Jess Stevens, who I am so pleased to know as a former colleague here at LCC, who is now a therapist with Rooted Counseling. And before we dive into our conversation, Jess, I just would love for you to share a little bit about Rooted Counseling. Yeah, we have three locations in the East Lansing area. There is one in the Bailey Community Center, which is right off of the Michigan State campus. There's one off Lake Lansing Road by Eastwood Town Center. And we have another location in Old Town, which is basically on the corner of Turner and um, Cesar Chavez. Rooted Counseling has, I think we're up to maybe like 35 clinicians. We have, we're a pretty large practice now. It's been growing really fast over this last year. Love working there. It's a great environment. And it's really great for our clinicians and our clients. We do have a lot of clinicians that specialize with LGBTQIA+. I couldn't even tell you how many right now. It's a lot. Um, and we are trying to be as inclusive as possible and have a really safe space for our clients to come and get therapy services. That's wonderful. You don't have to go far to hear about the shortage of mental health practitioners and the need that just continues to skyrocket, really. And Lane, as a trans man and an advocate, can you speak a little bit to the need of this population in particular for mental health, mental health care? And I always think of mental health as human health. So maybe we can also talk about that a little bit, that it's part of who we are and we need to take care of it. But different populations are vulnerable for various reasons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, one, I'm a huge proponent of therapy, mental health, human health. I mean, it's just so important for us as people, but especially the trans community. I think we know that trans kids, trans youth, trans people are more prone to depression and suicidal thoughts than their cisgender peers. And and it matters because it comes down to, you know, feelings of rejection and feelings of loneliness, feelings of not being good enough, you know, not knowing yourself. And those are things that people need to talk about and understand because you're not crazy, you're not bad, you know, and the society that we live in right now, that's what they're telling kids. And so the therapists, the doctors, they're part of a wraparound, I guess I'd call it, you need wrapper, you need a village if you're trans, you know, it takes a village and that, and there are people out there. And so I think mental health is, is a huge piece of, you know, being okay with who you are. Definitely. And there are unique circumstances. And I think for, for a whole lot of people, seeking mental health care is a real challenge because there's such a stigma on mental health. And our society seems to separate it from the rest of our body somehow as though our mind is just out there floating along. <laughs> I mean, that is kind of how we live sometimes. That's <laughs> how I feel. But it's all part of the same. And um, so how do people make that leap? How do you encourage that to, to I think happen? I think it's gotten better, honestly. And that's, oh, you know, I mean, from a, that's coming from an athletic standpoint, from a trans standpoint. I think 
mental health is important. I think there's more, you know, stereotypically they say, you know, men don't do therapy, you know, stuff like that. Like, yep. I think that's going away because mental health is important. And you see the new generation of kids who, even the way they look at the workplace is different, right? Like, I think we're changing. And then for trans people, and I know for me specifically, like therapy is part of our process. I mean, it has to be, it oh, must be part of your really? process. And I'm thankful for that because even though it might be a means to an end, if you're trying to, you know, start hormone therapy or you want to, you know, move forward in your process, it could be a means to an end. But at the end of the day, it's still going to help you. It's still going to help you look back and reach in and figure out, you know, where did this come from? How do I work through it? How do I get through what I'm going through socially with my family? And so for trans people specifically and probably the LGBTQ plus community, I think we're probably more open to therapy because we need it we need this space that's that's safe and so for us sometimes what it would be is finding the right person finding somebody who is accepting finding people who understand what you're going through or who have gone through it themselves I mean those would be challenges I think of so as part of transgender awareness week I know it's also to celebrate stories of trans folks uh, but to increase awareness in in the general population in a in a positive way Jess, what's your experience with that? Can you talk a little bit about how has that played out? Do you see it having a positive impact? This Awareness Week can have a positive impact. I mean, if we just think of social media in general, this week what I've noticed personally even through Instagram or Facebook stories is that a lot of people are saying, oh, it's TDOR week. So what are some, what's some information we can share on our stories about this population? And so I've been noticing a lot of that, which that's bringing awareness to the community. It's hard to say that this is necessarily a positive week because we are leading up to the vigil, which will happen on Sunday, to remember those transgender people that uh, passed away due to violence. Um, and so I think for me, what I try to remember when, I, when I'm talking to clients too is that we are in such a different place right now than we were yesterday. And while sometimes we are faced with oppression from news outlets or politicians, you know, our family, we get to choose what we do with that. So do we let that affect us every day? Do we let that affect our, our journey? Or do we put up appropriate boundaries with them and live our true selves? So that's a way that I try to spin that for them because although we want to put a positive light on this week, it's not leading up to a positive day. You know, this is a day of remembrance for a reason. I love, I'm sorry, I love that Jess said that because he's, 100% right. Like to me, Trans Awareness Week is about our power to me, the week. It's about here's who we are. We've been here a long time. Also, he's absolutely right. We're not where we were yesterday, but like it also feels crappy sometimes. And so this is us. We're showing you we're here, right? We're not going anywhere. We are we want to be we want to be treated equally we deserve the same rights as everyone and there are trans people doing incredible amazing things and also trans people are incredible and amazing that's what i feel about this week and then you get to sunday and for me and i think probably for all of us we have to take a minute and you look and you're like these people literally were killed for existing they are not here just because of who they are and so it's a sad day because people are gone it's also a day where it's like, this is what we're fighting for. This is why. This is what we're fighting for. This is why we show up to the courtrooms. This is why we protest. This is why we need people to fill out the trans survey. Like, this is why we're fighting. And I think that's also why it's so important, you know? Definitely. And I appreciative when our community is able to do something to bring attention to that. And these are important things year round, but... Sometimes you need that point in time to focus attention and make people aware. And to me, it's incredibly powerful that when I think about what it takes to go through a transition to the extent that I know, you know, it's not something that I've experienced, but only know from what I've read and, and from what trans folks have shared with me, what power and strength it takes to identify yourself, to be true to yourself, and then follow that path and all the steps that are required. Um, talk about athletes. <laughs> talk about athletic. I mean, it's a, it's a physical feat. And we celebrate athletes. I think we should celebrate, uh, likewise, folks who decide to make that and, and follow that, 
that path, just as I think we should celebrate us all, really. What kind of activities can people expect on Trans Remembrance Day? I personally go to the Michigan State Vigil every year. Um, it's on Sunday night. Uh, that's when I've attended since I've I've been going there since maybe 2010, <laughs> um, besides COVID, um, did not go then, but I've been going to that one. And that's the uh, one that most people go to, I believe, and I might be wrong, but I think the Solace Center partners with them now, or maybe they do their own, I can't remember. So locally, that's the one that I'll be attending. How has our community changed, would you say, in terms of support or resistance? Hmm. I mean, I think... You said something really interesting just a few minutes ago about how, you know, what a feat it is for trans people to transition and all that stuff. And that's literally why I think trans people are so cool and amazing. And I'm biased, obviously, <laughs> but I do. I mean, imagine the courage it takes to be like, I want to be my true self and I'm going to do it. And I think there's also an important distinction to make there, which is not good or bad, but it's like some people transition to be who they are and then just live. And some people transition to be who they are and they want to talk about it and they want to let people know and they want to be an example. And both ways are totally fine and equally brave because you are walking in your truth. And and for some people, the point of that is to be themselves and however they got there. And so I just want, I just want to make sure that I say that because there's a lot of ways to be trans and to be proud. And to me, the reason why we are so amazing is because of the level of courage it takes to walk around as yourself. I love that. I'm so glad that you that you said that because it 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 um people are different and all are valued and important. And important. Well, yes. and safety too. Yes. The main reason people go into there's something called stealth where someone doesn't disclose that they're trans to mm -hmm. workplace or new friends or school. And it's because they've been shown that it's not safe for them. And so they continue to live their lives like that because they don't feel that they are safe to do that. And that's a really bad feeling to have, too, feeling like you cannot be your true self to other people or let them in on who you are. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say, like, Lena is exactly right. And I think the main proponent there is safety. They're, they've been shown that it is not safe for me to be out in these spaces. Clearly, clearly it's not. Otherwise, we wouldn't have... To have a trans to remember. remembrance mm -hmm. day, exactly. And so psychologically, I can see how that ties back to the the unique vulnerability of this population because a lot of populations don't have that same kind of safety issue for just being who they are. Absolutely. I mean, I as a, a, a white cis woman, I mean as a woman, there's other safety issues. But no, I don't I don't have that. I do not have that kind of issue that I, I need to to contend with. So do you see, Jess, that that's part of the discussion in therapy? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Every single session. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is not a session I go through with a trans person that we do not talk about safety in some way. Mm -hmm. And I don't do that with other people. So that's yeah. something to make note of. Even if uh, I have clients that have went through a medical transition are quote unquote passing and would never have to mention. Right. There's still fear there. So we talk about safety. Is it, is it with people? Is it with spaces? Is it with environments? Is it work or is it school? I think that the, the focus a lot of times has been on the medical transition. So when you see those news outlets that we should not be watching, <laughs> um, <laughs> talking about trans people, they're too focused on medical transition and kids. Mm -hmm. Yep. There's no, never a mention of the social transition. There's never a mention of the documentation changes, the barriers that are there, how long it takes and how much work it takes for someone to transition. And how um, serious it is and yeah. how there's medical doctors involved and researchers and biologists and years and years of people who like have degrees and went to school and know what our bodies can do. Like the thing that people also forget is that we're human literally human with like bones and like the blood and the whatever else is inside your body that humans have that doctors know what's supposed to be what I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt but like that makes me so mad when it's focused on the kids and it's like be for real nobody nobody is making this decision rashly nobody is making this decision rashly nobody is like I think I want to be trans today that sounds fun <laughs> that sounds so fun I mean and nobody's doing that to win an award 
by the way, you heard me say it. I said what I said. Nobody transitions to win awards because when the competition is over, we're still going to be trans. Mm -hmm. We're going to still live our lives. We're going to still be exactly who we are. If a person is an athlete who's trans, they happen to be trans. They love their sport. And so when people are talking about kids, I want to be very clear. Like, number one, you can't just do things. You can't just say, hey, yesterday, uh, little Bobby told me, you know, so we're going to start today. You absolutely are not going to start today. You absolutely are not. And that's a misconception. That's misinformation. Can you misinformation. talk about that a little bit? What do you mean? The, that, that you don't just start today. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, there's so many things going through my head right now. The misinformation that just, you know, explodes. It's like, it, you know, this tinderbox and boom, mm -hmm. matches are being tossed in it all the time that are misinformation. To step back, you don't just start today. What does mm -hmm. that mean, Lane? It means exactly how it sounds. There are processes that you have to go through. I mean, a parent couldn't say okay, let's go to the doctor tomorrow and we'll get you on some puberty blockers. Mm -hmm. You absolutely are not doing that. Mm -hmm. there, there's many things that have to happen in it. And like I was talking about that wraparound support, there's a lot of other people involved too. Mm -hmm. And those are medical decisions that come with recommendations and after in-depth conversations to understand where is this coming from. And it also doesn't automatically jump to puberty blockers. I mean, there's, there's so many steps you know, and we have to remember that parents, you know, especially the parents that are in these situations that are trying to find a way forward for their kids, they're just trying to find a way forward for their kids. Mm -hmm. And it takes time even to give a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, yes. a true gender dysphoria diagnosis. There are separate criteria that people have to meet in order to be diagnosed with that. And kids are different. So kids under a certain age are different than an adolescent or adult being diagnosed. And it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of evaluation. And it's not working with like psychotherapy is not meant to be a barrier. It can be a barrier, especially for those living in poverty. It can definitely be a barrier. And even new WPAS standards of care eight say that psychotherapy should not be a barrier for services. Yes. However, for kids, it's much different. And I think like, Lane mentioned puberty blockers, and this is a big misconception too. People think that they're just being given away exactly. at the doctor or their, exactly. their pediatrician. <laughs> the reality is, is that only kids under the age of puberty, which hits about 10 or 11 years old, should be taking puberty blockers if they are truly diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Um, if they're going through that process, they're diagnosed from their, their clinician and they're working with a pediatrician with gender affirming care. And in the last five years, less than 4,800 kids have gotten puberty blockers. Thank you. I was hoping you were going to say that because I was going to say the number is like less than 1,000 yeah. a year. Yeah. Like, come on. In the last five years, less than 4,800. I think it's like 47 <laughs> and some change. Like, you, you hear the math on that? Yeah. With the number of people in this country and the number of kids? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, there, where's the fire? Exactly. Because we just need a bucket to put it out. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Parents watch the news and they get scared. They get There's a lot of fear there. We have this, like, we, even me, like, I can jump to a conclusion, like, oh, my gosh, this parent, like, it must be, like, a super, like, conservative parent. Like, they grew up in a household that, like, maybe this is never going to be okay for them. But I have to, even as me, a clinician, I have to sometimes step back and say, you know, they're really scared. They're really scared because all they know about being yes. trans is from yes. news outlets. They don't know anything on a clinical level. They don't know what I know. So a lot of it's psychoeducation to parents about what that means and how do we take care of our kids? What is gender affirming care? Yes. And how do we do that in the safest way possible? And the question is, like, what if they change their mind? You know, parents have asked me before, like a 13-year-old, you know, what, what happens if we change our pronouns at home? We change the name. You know, we start using a different name. And they change their mind when they're 16. And I just say, well, what if they do? What if they do change their mind? It's kind of like um, I was into airplanes as a kid. But then when I turned like 13, I was really into trucks. <laughs> I changed my mind. Mm -hmm. And everything was fine. So there are some ways to talk to parents to make it less scary for them. And focusing on giving your child compassion. You don't have to really, un you don't have to understand every single thing, what it, what it means to be a transgender person. Um, I, it's good to, but you don't have to know every single in and out of it. But the first step is having compassion for the community and compassion for your kids. And listening and understanding and, you know, watching, waiting, you know what I mean? Like just unpacking what Jess just said, you know, if somebody changes their mind, what he's also saying, I think, and you can correct me, but it's just like, we're watching, you know, it's not like they jump to hormone therapy because that 
evaluation showed, you know, let's see, like be, be accepting. You change names. That's good. Let's see how it goes. Right. Let's give the kid the space mm -hmm. to be who they are. That's what he's saying. He's not like yeah. the kid, you know what I mean? We're giving the kid the space to be who they are. Mm -hmm. Boy, it's important for every child, but in, in particular with gender identity, but yeah, there is, there is a lot of fear and it, it makes me think about what resources might there be for parents? And it's in, uh, just recently I met two different parents who have children who are considering transition. And one of the parents who is older and their child is, a, is an adult. And they actually, when they, they first spoke with me, they shared they had, it, it, was, it was difficult. It was a difficult moment for them to share. And I didn't go into deep conversation. I just met this person. But I thought, parents need resources too. What kind of resources exist for education and to help see what this process might mean? Yeah, that's a good question. There are many things online like PFLAG and other parent groups that you can locate. What's PFLAG? Um, PFLAG is a, like LGBT parents of LGBTQIA uh, kids. Okay. Um, it's a really nice organization. Mm -hmm. You can follow them on Instagram. I follow them on Instagram. Um, but Rooted Counseling, we have a group called Q Parenting, and we meet once a month, and parents can come and talk to a clinician. Um, Cosette Weaver is the clinician that runs that group. Um, and I would recommend that if a parent is looking for support to just stop by, no pressure. It's from 6 to 7.30, typically the last Thursday of the month, but because of the holidays, we're adjusting. We're not going to have one next week because of Thanksgiving, but December will probably be a different date. We post that on our social media pages for Rooted Counseling, so feel free to give us a follow. Um, I believe the Salas Center also offers a parenting group, too. We have a, a Q Connect for teens from 13 to 17 years old, and we also have Q Living for LGBTQIA adults that are looking to, for support, um, and that also meets once a month. Um, feel free to just visit our website, and you can find information there. So locally, those are some resources that we have. I guess I'd say, if we're plugging things, I'm kidding, but I'd <laughs> say, do. you know, on my podcast, and that's for, there's a, there's a couple of episodes that are, you know, about coming out that are about family. Like I have a couple with my dad and my sister on there um, that just might be good to hear what it was like for them to hear also and kind of how we work through it. And then I'd suggest probably, you know, looking at Facebook pages in your area because there's events, you know, there's LGBTQ plus Facebook pages, there's parents and families, you know, support Facebook pages and looking for stuff like that because Hearing, you know, real people's stories is what's going to help. And obviously what Rooted is doing is always awesome. So Definitely. I want to allow time for both of you to address anything that might be on your minds in regards to this. But there was something also, Lane, that you said that I just wanted to explore a little bit more. You said people don't do this for awards. What, what are you talking about? Do some people think that people become trans for some sort of award? Well, I just went on the Dr. Phil show. And the main topic on that show was trans athletes in sports. And they wanted to talk about Leah Thomas and her success. And all I'm, all I'm saying is, again, people don't transition to win awards. I mean, can you imagine being a kid? Because that's what she is. She's in college. She's a kid. She's in her 20s, you know? And can you imagine being an athlete who loves their sport and realizing that you're, I mean, you're, you're not your true self. You're not in the right body. Like when you when you realize that you're trans, it takes it takes over. It's it's unbearable anymore. Wow. And so to be in the national eye, to stand up and say I'm gonna be me, I think she's brave. I think she's courageous. I'm proud of her, and I'm thankful that she stood up to show all of these people. And so what I told them on that show was, guess what? Guess what? When Leah is done swimming, she's still gonna be trans. Mm -hmm. because she's a trans person who happens to be a swimmer. End of story, bottom line. Yes, definitely. And the reaction is sometimes just so narrow to try and really put it in a box and, and while seemingly open to limit a person's expression, self-expression, whether that's you know their gender expression or their athletic or their intellectual expression, yep. uh, if they feel that it's to me, that seems to come back to not just that it's making it harder for others to be in that athletic competition or it's not fair to some group, but that it really, underneath it all, there's 
something, you know, the anti-trans, Correct. no matter what people say. Absolutely. And uh, that's, that is important for us to keep in mind. That's where a lot of danger seems to lie Agreed. in my mind. So I think another thing that you said, Lane, that we talked about is the different ways that people want to live their lives. But the need for advocates is really is really huge. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that people who are trans should all follow that path. They couldn't. I mean, none of us can, can if we're not an advocate, we're not going to be an advocate. But for somebody like you, and I think just for you in your work to be able to, to be out there, that is super crucial. Okay. What do you each want to share in the last couple minutes of our, of this episode? I think a couple things. Um, something to keep in mind that uh, one supportive adult in a transgender person's life can make all the difference. So that could mean, like for me as a clinician, sometimes it is me. Sometimes I'm the only person that knows. Sometimes I'm the only person I've ever talked to this about. And I'm helping them like walk through those steps of social and medical transition if applicable and learning how to let people in rather than coming out. I've been using the term letting in. I'm that person sometimes, but here at the college, that's your academic advisor or your success coach or one of your professors. It makes all the difference to just have at least one supportive adult in your corner. Um, if we can get to that to three, that'd be ideal. Mm-hmm. But um, at least one one supportive adult can make the world a difference. And, you know, something that is a really staggering stat for me is that 40% of transgender adults have attempted suicide wow. compared to less than 5% of the general population. So... That is something to keep in mind as we walk into this vigil because the vigil is about recognizing those that have died to trans violence. We, have, we haven't added in those that have died, uh, completed suicide because they were unable to live uh, their true selves. I, what Jess just said gave me goosebumps all over um, in, a, in a bunch of different ways. And it's the reason why I speak out you know, it's the reason why I do, because it matters. And so the last, the only thing I'd say is trans people, I think you're cool and wonderful and amazing for being you. And I will never stop fighting. I will never stop talking. Neither will Jess. And I think that we're headed to a better place and and we're going to keep fighting. And I'm, I'm happy about what's going on in Michigan. So I feel safe here. So I'm so glad to hear that. Well, thank you both, Lane Ingram and Jess Stevens, for sharing this information. I think whoever uh, may be listening, whether you are a trans person or an ally or someone who is just hearing about it for the first time, and there's a lot that's new to take in here, thank you very much for listening. When you go to the lccconnect.org website, you'll be able to find this episode, and there will also be links to the resources that Lane and Jess mentioned and contact info if you want to follow up with them. Uh, You can also catch past episodes of this program, Galaxy Forum, and other LCC Connect programming. I want to thank Andy Callis for composing our theme music, and thank you all for listening. I'm Melissa Kaplan, and this is Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. LCC Connect is looking for Lansing Community College students to vibe with us. Join us for the podcast power-up contest. Students, your voice is important, so take this opportunity to tell us what's important to you with the chance to host a podcast radio show on 89.7 FM. We'll be taking power-up submissions through the end of summer. Catch the vibe and find the details at lcc.edu slash power-up. That's lcc.edu slash power-up. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply transfer credits towards their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash you belong. The Cesar Chavez Learning Center's Access Program at Lansing Community College creates a community on campus for underrepresented students, providing them with a support network and multiple layers of academic, social, and professional experiences. Access also incorporates workshops and resources that assist in educational and career advancement. To find out more about Access, visit lcc.edu and search Access Program. 
This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.